Chapter 28, Part 2 of the San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Apfelstadt. The San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire by Charles Morris. Chapter 28, Part 2 The Vivid Account of Monsieur Albert. To the accounts given by the survivors of the Rorama and the officers of the Etona, it would be well to add the following graphic story told by Monsieur Albert, a planter on the island, the owner of an estate situated only a mile to the northeast of the burning crater of Montpellier. His escape from death had in it something of the marvelous. He says... Montpellier had given warning of the destruction that was to come, but we, who had looked upon the volcano as harmless, did not believe that it would do more than spout fire and steam as it had done on other occasions. It was a little before eight o'clock on the morning of May 8th that the end came. I was in one of the fields of my estate when the ground trembled under my feet, not as it does when the earthquakes, but as though a terrible struggle was going on within the mountain. A terror came upon me, but I could not explain my fear. As I stood still, Montpellier seemed to shudder, and a moaning sound issued from its crater. It was quite dark, the sun being obscured by ashes and fine volcanic dust. The air was dead about me, so dead that the floating dusk seemingly was not disturbed. Then there was a rending, crashing, grinding noise, which I can only describe as sounding as though every bit of machinery in the world had suddenly broken down. It was deafening, and the flash of light that accompanied it was blinding, more so than any lightning I have ever seen. It was like a terrible hurricane, and where a fraction of a second before there had been a perfect calm, I felt myself drawn into a vortex, and I had to brace myself firmly. It was like a great express train rushing by, and I was drawn by its force. The mysterious force leveled a row of strong trees, tearing them up by the roots, and leaving bare a space of ground fifteen yards wide and more than one hundred yards long. Transfixed I stood, not knowing in what direction to flee. I looked toward Montpellier, and above its apex there appeared a great black cloud which reached high into the air. It literally fell upon the city of Saint-Pierre. It moved with a rapidity that made it impossible for anything to escape it. From the cloud came explosions that sounded as though all the navies in the world were in titanic combat. Lightning played in and out of the broad forks, the result being that intense darkness was followed by light that seemed to be of magnifying power. That Saint-Pierre was doomed I knew, but I was prevented from seeing the destruction by a spur of the hill that shut off the view of the city. It is impossible for me to tell how long I stood there inert. Probably it was only a few seconds, but so vivid were my impressions that it now seems as though I stood as a spectator for many minutes. When I recovered possession of my senses, I ran to my house and collected the members of the family, all of whom were panic-stricken. I hurried them to the seashore, where we boarded a small steamship in which we made the trip in safety to Fort de France. I know that there was no flame in the first wave that was set down upon Saint-Pierre. It was a heavy gas, like fire-damp, and it must have asphyxiated the inhabitants before they were touched by the fire, which quickly followed. As we drew out to sea in a small steamship, Montpellier was in the throes of a terrible convulsion. 
new craters seemed to be opening all about the summit and lava was flowing in broad streams in every direction my estate was ruined while we were still in sight of it many women who lived in st pierre escaped only to know that they were left widowed and childless this is because many of the wealthier men sent their wives away while they remained in st pierre to attend to business affairs what happened on the horace the british steamer horace experienced the effect of the explosion when farther from land after touching at barbados she reached the vicinity of martinique on the day of may ninth her decks being covered with several inches of dust when she was a hundred and twenty five miles distant we quote engineer anderson's story on the afternoon of may eighth thursday we noticed a peculiar haze in the direction of martinique the air seemed heavy and oppressive the weather conditions were not at all unlike those which precede the great west indian hurricanes but knowing it was not the season of the year for them we all remarked in the engine-room that there must be a heavy storm approaching several of the sailors experienced deep-water seamen laughed at our prognostications and informed us there would be no storm within the next sixty hours and insisted that according to all foxhole indications a dead calm was in sight so unusually peculiar were the weather conditions that we talked of nothing else during the evening that night in the direction of martinique there was a very black sky an unusual thing at this season of the year and a storm was apparently brewing in the direction from which storms do not come in this season great flashes of light as the night wore on those on watch noticed what appeared to be great flashes of lightning in the direction of martinique it seemed as though the ordinary conditions were reversed and even the foxhole prophets were unable to offer explanations occasionally over the pounding of the engines and the rush of water we thought we could hear long deep roars not unlike the ending of a deep peal of thunder several times we heard the rumble or roar but at times we were not certain as to exactly what it was or even whether we really heard it there would suddenly come great flashes of light from the dark bank toward martinique some of them seemed to spread over a great area while others seemed to spout skyward funnel-shaped all night this continued and it was not until day came that the flashes disappeared the dark bank that covered the horizon toward martinique however did not fade away with the breaking of day and at eight in the morning of the ninth friday the whole section of the sky in that direction seemed dark and troubled about nine o'clock friday morning i was sitting on one of the hatches aft with some of the other engineers and officers of the ship discussing the peculiar weather phenomena i noticed a sort of grit that got into my mouth from the end of the cigar i was smoking i attributed it to some rather bad coal which we had shipped aboard and turning to chief engineer evans i remarked that the coal was mighty dirty and he said it was covering the ship with a sort of grit then i noticed the grit was getting on my clothes and finally someone suggested we go forward of the funnels so we wouldn't get dirt on us as we went forward we met one or two of the sailors from the forecastle who wanted to know about the dust that was falling on the ship then we found that the grayish-looking ash was sifting all over the ship both forward and aft ashes rained on the ship every moment the ashes fell down all over the ship and at the same time grew thicker a few moments later the lookout called down that we were running into a fog bank dead ahead fog banks in that section are unheard of at nine o'clock in the morning at this season and we were more than a hundred miles from land and what could fog and sand be doing there 
before we knew it we went into the fog which proved to be a big dense bank of the same sand and it rained down on us from every side ventilators were quickly brought to their places and later even the hatches were battened down the dust became suffocating and the men at times had all they could do to keep from choking what the stuff was we could not at first conjecture or rather we didn't have much time to speculate on it for we had to get our ship in shape to withstand we hardly knew what at first we thought the sand must have been blown from shore then we decided that if the captain's figures were right we wouldn't be near enough to shore to have sand blown on us and as we had just cleared barbados we knew the captain's figures had to be right just as the storm of sand was at its height fourth engineer wilde was nearly suffocated by it but was easily revived about this time it became so dark we found it necessary to start up the electric lights and it was not until after we got clear from the fog that we turned the current off in the meantime they had burned from nine in the morning until after two in the afternoon the engine became choked then there was another anxious moment shortly after nine o'clock third engineer rennie had been running the donkey engine when suddenly it choked and when he finally got it clear from the sand or ashes he found the valves were all cut out and then it was we discovered that it was not sand but some sort of composition that seemed to cut steel like emery then came the danger that it would get into the valves of the engine and cut them out, and for several moments all hands scurried about and helped make the engine room tight, and even then the ash drifted in and kept all the engine room force wiping the engines clear of it. Toward three o'clock in the afternoon of Friday we were practically clear of the sand, but at eleven o'clock that night we ran into a second bank of it, though not as bad as the first we made some experiments and found the stuff was superior to emery dust it cut deeper and quicker and only about half as much was required to do the work we made up our minds we would keep what came on board as it was better than emery dust and much cheaper so we gathered it up that night there were more of the same electric phenomena toward martinique but it was not until we got into san lucia where we saw the rodham that we learned of the terrible disaster at saint pierre and we knew that our sand was lava dust the volcanic ash which fell on the decks of the horus was ground as fine as rifle powder and was much finer than that which covered the decks of the etona returning to the stories told by officers of the royama of which a number had been given it seems desirable to add here the narrative of ellery s scott the mate of the ruined ship since it gives a vivid and striking account of his personal experience of the frightful disaster with many details of interest not related by others mate scott's graphic story we got to saint pierre in the royama began mr scott at six thirty in the morning on thursday morning that's the morning the mountain and the town and the ships were all sent to hell in a minute all hands had breakfast i was standing on the forecastle head trying to make out the marks of the pipes on a ship way out and heading for san lucia i wasn't looking at the mountain at all but i guess the captain was for he was on the bridge and the last time i heard him speak was when he shouted heave up mr scott heave up i gave the order to the men and i think some of them did jump to get the anchor up but nobody knows what really happened for the next fifteen minutes. I turned around toward the captain, and then I saw the mountain. Did you ever see the tide come into the Bay of Fundy? It doesn't sneak in a little at a time as it does round here. It rolls in in waves. That's the way the cloud of fire and mud and white-hot stones rolled down from the volcano over the town and over the ships. It was on us in almost no time, but I saw it 
and in the same glance I saw our captain bracing himself to meet it on the bridge. It was facing the fire cloud with both hands gripped hard to the bridge rail, his legs apart, and his knees braced back stiff. I've seen him brace himself that same way many a time in a tough sea with the spray going masthead high and green water pouring along the decks. I saw the captain, I say, at the same instant I saw that ruin coming down upon us. I don't know why, but that last glimpse of poor Mugga on his bridge will stay with me just as long as I remember Saint-Pierre, and that will be long enough. In another instant it was all over for him. As I was looking at him he was all ablaze. He reeled and fell on the bridge with his face towards me. His mustache and eyebrows were gone in a jiffy. His hat was gone and his hair was aflame, and so were his clothes from head to foot. I knew he was conscious when he fell by the look in his eyes, but he didn't make a sound. That all happened a long way inside of half a minute. Then something new happened. When the wave of fire was going over us, a tidal wave of the sea came out from the shore and did the rest. That wall of rushing water was so high and so solid it seemed to rise up and join the smoke and flame above. For an instant we could see nothing but the water and the flame. That tidal wave picked the ship up like a canoe and then smashed her. After one list to starboard the ship righted, but the masts, the bridge, the funnel, and all the upper works had gone overboard. I had saved myself from fire by jamming a metal ventilator cover over my head and jumping from the forecastle head. Two St. Kitt Negroes saved me from the water by grabbing me by the legs and pulling me down into the forecastle after them. Before I could get up, three men tumbled in on top of me. Two of them were dead. Captain Mugga went overboard, still clinging to the fragments of his wrecked bridge. Daniel Taylor, the ship's cooper, and a Kitts native jumped overboard to save him. Taylor managed to push the captain onto a hatch that had floated off from us, and then they swam back to the ship for more assistance, but nothing could be done for the captain. Taylor wasn't sure he was alive. The last we saw of him or his dead body, it was drifting shoreward on that hatch. Well, after staying in the forecastle about twenty minutes, I went out on the deck. There were just four of us left aboard who could do anything. The four were Thompson, Dan Taylor, Quashi, and myself. It was still raining fire and hot rocks, and you could hardly see a ship's length for dust and ashes, but we could stand that. There were burning men and some women and two or three children lying around the deck, not just burned, but burning, then, when we got to them. More than half of the ship's company had been killed in that first rush of flame. Some had rolled overboard when the tidal wave came, and we never saw so much as their bodies. The cook was burned to death in his galley. He had been paring potatoes for dinner, and what was left of his right hand held the shank of his potato knife. The wooden handle was in ashes. All of that happened to a man in less than a minute. The donkey engineman was killed on deck sitting in front of his boiler. We found parts of somebody's, a hand or an arm or a leg. Below decks there were some twenty alive. The ship was on fire, of course, what was left of it. The stumps of both masts were blazing. Aft she was like a furnace, but forward the flames had not got below deck. So we four carried those who were still alive on deck into the forecastle. All of them were burned, and most of them were half-strangled. One boy, a passenger, and just a little shaver, the four-year-old son of the late Clement Stokes, above spoken of, was picked up naked. His hair and all his clothing had been burned off, but he was alive. We rolled him in a blanket and put him in a sailor's bunk. A few minutes later we looked at him, and he was dead. 
My own son's gone, too. It had been his trick at lookout during the dog watch that morning when we were making for Saint-Pierre, so I supposed at first when the fire struck us that he was asleep in his bunk and safe, but he wasn't. Nobody could tell me where he was. I don't know whether he was burned to death or rolled overboard and drowned. He was a likely boy. He had been several voyages with me and would have been a master some day. He used to say how he'd make me mate. After getting all hands that had any life left in them below, and tended to it best we could, the four of us that were left halfway ship-shape started in to fight the fire. We had case oil stowed aboard. Thanks to that tidal wave that cleared out our decks, there wasn't much left to burn. So we got the fire down so's we could live on board with it for several hours more, and then the four turned to knock a raft together out of what timber and truck we could find below. Our boats had gone overboard with the masts and funnel. Prepared to trust to luck, we made that raft for something over thirty that were alive. We put provisions on for two days and rigged up a makeshift mast and sail, for we intended to go to sea. We were only three boat lengths from shore, but the shore was hell itself. We intended to put straight out and trust to luck that the corona that was about due at Saint-Pierre would pick us up. But we did not have to risk the raft, for about three o'clock in the afternoon, when we were almost ready to put the raft overboard, the Suchet came along and took us all off. We thought for a minute, just after we were wrecked, that we were to get help from a ship that passed us. We burned blue lights, but she kept on. We learned afterward that she was the Rodham. Soundings made off Martinique after the explosion showed that the earthquake effects of much importance had taken place under the sea bottom, which had been lifted in some places and had sunk in others. While deep crevices had been formed on the land, a still greater effect had seemingly been produced beneath the water. During the explosion, the sea withdrew several hundred feet from its shoreline. Then it came back steaming with fury, this indicating a lift and a fall of the ocean bed off the isle. Soundings made subsequently near the island found one place a depth of 4,000 feet, where before it had only been 600 feet deep. The French cable company, which was at work trying to repair the cables broken by the eruption, found the bottom of the Caribbean Sea so changed as to render the old charts useless. New charts will need to be made up for future navigation. The changes in sea level were not confined to the immediate center of the volcanic activity, but extended as far north as Puerto Rico, and it was believed that the seismic wave would be found to have altered the ocean bed around Jamaica. Vessels plying between St. Thomas, Martinique, and St. Lucia and other islands found it necessary to heave the lead while many miles at sea. It is estimated that the sea had encroached from ten feet to two miles along the coast of St. Vincent near Georgetown, and that a section on the north end of the island had dropped into the sea. Soundings showed seven fathoms, where before the eruption there were thirty-six fathoms of water. Vessels that endeavored to approach St. Vincent toward the north reported that it was impossible to get nearer than eight miles to the scene of the catastrophe, and that at that distance the ocean was seriously perturbed as from a submarine volcano boiling and hissing continuously. In this connection, the remarkable experience reported by the officers of the Danish ship Nordby on the day preceding the eruption is of much interest, as seemingly to show great convulsions of the sea bottom at a point several hundred miles from Martinique. The following is the story told by Captain Eric Lilianskjold, The Strange Experience of the Nordby. 
On May 5th, the captain said, we touched at St. Michael's for water. We had had an easy voyage from Girgenti in Sicily, and we wanted to finish an easy run up here. We left St. Michael's on the same day. Nothing worthwhile talking about occurred until two days afterwards, Wednesday, May 7th. We were plodding along slowly that day. About noon I took the bridge to make an observation. It seemed to be hotter than ordinary. I shed my coat and vest and got into what little shade there was. As I worked, it grew hotter and hotter. I didn't know what to make of it. Along about two o'clock in the afternoon, it was so hot that all hands got to talking about it. We reckoned that something queer was coming off, but none of us could explain what it was. You could almost see the pitch softening in the seams. Then, as quick as you could toss a biscuit over its rail, the Nordby dropped, regularly dropped, three or four feet down into the sea. No sooner did it do this than big waves that looked like they were coming from all directions at once began to smash against our sides. This was queerer yet, because the water a minute before had been as smooth as I ever saw it. I had all hands piped on deck, and we battened down everything loose to make ready for a storm. And we got it all right, the strangest storm you ever heard of. There was something wrong with the sun that afternoon. It grew red and then dark red, and then, about a quarter to two, it went out of sight altogether. The day got so dark you couldn't see a half a ship's length ahead of you. We got our lamps going, put on our oilskins, ready for a hurricane. All of a sudden there came a sheet of lightning that showed up the whole tumbling sea for miles and miles. We sort of ducked, expecting an awful crash of thunder, but it didn't come. There was no sound except the big waves pounding against our sides. There wasn't a breath of wind. Well, sir, at that minute there began the most exciting time I've ever been through, and I've been on every sea on the map for twenty-five years. Every second there'd be waves fifteen or twenty feet high, belting us head-on, stern-on, and broadside all at once. We could see them coming, for without any stop at all, flash after flash of lightning was blazing all about us. Something else we could see, too, sharks. There were hundreds of them on all sides, jumping up and down in the water. Some of them jumped clear out of it, and seabirds, a flock of them, squawking and crying, made for our rigging and perched there. They seemed like they were scared to death. But the queerest part of it all was the water itself. It was hot. Not so hot that our feet couldn't stand it when it washed over the deck, but hot enough to make us think it had been heated by some kind of a fire. Well, that sort of thing went on hour after hour. The waves, the lightning, the hot water, and the sharks, and all the rest of the odd things happening frightened the crew out of their wits. Some of them prayed out loud, I guess the first time they ever did so in their lives. Some Frenchmen aboard kept running around and yelling, C'est la dernière jour! This is the last day. We were all worried. Even the officers began to think that the world was coming to an end. Mighty strange things happened on the sea, but this topped them all. I kept to the bridge all night. When the first hour of morning came, the storm was still going on. We were all pretty much tired out by that time, but there was no such thing as trying to sleep. The waves were still batting us around, and we didn't know whether we were one mile or a thousand miles from shore. At two o'clock in the morning, all the queer goings-on stopped just the way they began, all of a sudden. We lay to until daylight, then we took our reckonings and started off again. We were about seven hundred miles off Cape Henlopen. No, sir, you couldn't get me to go through a thing like that again for $10,000. None of us was hurt, and the old Nordby herself pulled through all right, but I'd sooner stay ashore than see waves without wind and lightning without thunder. 
Fiery stream contained poisonous gases. Careful inspection showed that the fiery stream which so completely destroyed Saint-Pierre must have been composed of poisonous gases, which instantly suffocated everyone who inhaled them, and of other gases burning furiously, for nearly all the victims had their hands covering their mouths, or were in some other attitude showing they had perished from suffocation. It is believed that Mount Pelet threw off a great gasp of some exceedingly heavy and noxious gas, something akin to fire damp, which settled upon the city and rendered the inhabitants insensible. This was followed by the sheet of flame that swept down the side of the mountain. This theory is sustained by the experience of the survivors who were taken from the ships in the harbor, as they say their first experience was one of faintness. The dumb animals were wiser than man, and early took warning of the storm of fire which Mount Pele was storing up to hurl upon the island. Even before the mountain began to rumble, late in April, livestock became uneasy, and at times were almost uncontrollable. Cattle lowed in the night, dogs howled, and sought the company of their masters, and when driven forth they gave every evidence of fear. Wild animals disappeared from the vicinity of Mount Pele, even the snakes, which at ordinary times are found in great numbers near the volcano, crawled away. Birds ceased singing, and left the trees that shaded the sides of Pele. A great fear seemed to be upon the island, and though it was shared by the human inhabitants, they alone neglected to protect themselves. Of the villages in the vicinity of Saint-Pierre, only one escaped, the other suffering the fate of the city. The fortunate one was Le Carbet, on the south, which escaped uninjured, the flood of lava stopping when within two hundred feet of the town. Mont Rouge, a beautiful summer resort, frequented by the people of the island during the hot season as a place of recreation, also escaped. In the height of the season several thousand people gathered there, though at the time of explosion there were but a few hundred. Though located on an elevation between the city and the crater, it was by great good fortune saved. The governor of Martinique, Mr. Moutet, whose precautions to prevent the people fleeing from the city aided to make the work of death complete, was himself among the victims of the burning mountain. With him in this fate was Colonel Dane, commander of the troops, who formed a cordon around the doomed city. End of chapter 28, part 2. Recording by Mark Applestott, Parlin, New Jersey.